Wait, wait, Morty, Morty, you hear that? Listen. Snake jazz. Ha, <laughs> idiots. Let's get moving. We got a long way to go, and I'm not sharing that centipede. Rick, wait, go back. I, I, I can't be the reason why 19 billion snakes lost all hope. That's right, Morty. Only 19 billion snakes can do that. That species was never getting beyond this stage. To paraphrase the great Jeff Foxworthy, if you bite your first contact on its ankle, you might be a type zero civilization neck. listening to so much pingle the podcast about herpetology field herping and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles join us each week as mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet and now bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone here's your host mike pingleton Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And I hope you all remain safe and healthy as we skate across February. Now, normally, this is the time of the year when I start thinking about salamander emergence and the calls of the first frogs of the year. But at the moment, we find ourselves in the icy grip of a polar vortex here at So Much Pingle World Headquarters. It's crazy cold out there today, and I'm not going anywhere if I can help it, but I just made a big pot of coffee, and I'm ready to settle in and talk to you all and get to episode 32. Now, there was no show last week because I pointed my car south to Birmingham, Alabama, for a few days of frogging and salamandering with some friends. Uh, Now, down there, things are dramatically different from my frozen home. The spotted salamanders have already laid their eggs in the ponds and in the vernal pools. And and some of the frogs were starting to warm up their vocal cords. But the froggies were kind of tough because we had some cold spells. But we did find a few species, including the newly described Sudacris collinsorum, Collins's mountain chorus frog. Now, this is a species that was formerly part of the mountain chorus frog, Sudacris brachyfauna. Uh, But populations south of the Tennessee River were found to be genetically distinct, and their calls are also distinct. And so the new species was described just last year. So uh, happy to see that and uh, saw an amplexing pair, among a few others. And I was also happy to see a few new salamanders, uh, well, new to me, uh, including Plethodon websteri and Eurycia hillisi, and a freaking chicken turtle, which was a first for me. And I may have done a little happy chicken turtle dance when we found it. Uh, So, good trip, and thanks to Adam and Haley and Brandon and John and Tim for all the things. Uh, Now, we're going to roll with the show in just a bit, but first, it's time to highlight this week's new Patreon supporters. So, thank you very much to David Burkhart and Adam Cooner. I really appreciate you supporting the show. And thanks once again to all my Patreon supporters. And and folks, if you would like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show rolling along, uh, go to patreon.com slash so much pingle. That's all one word. Now let's get to this week's guest. Uh, Dusty Rhodes recently finished up his master's at Texas Christian University, and he's been involved with a number of interesting projects over the years. 
uh, including one that features a favorite serpent of mine, the Trans-Pecos Rat Snake, Bogertophus subocularis, which, of course, if you listen to the Jargon episode, most of us simply call it the Sabak. And we also cover some very interesting aspects of the Texas Horned Lizard. Uh, and who doesn't love a horny toad? I mean, when the Australian harpsters get tired of playing with Mola Cordis, uh, they come on over to the desert southwest to see our enigmatic little prickly pancakes. Uh, they're just very cool little lizards. And I learned some things uh, about talking to Dusty about horned lizards and color patterns and how the H-snake got its issues and, and about some cool conservation projects to help restore Texas horned lizards. And I appreciate Dusty hanging in there because, uh, uh, because we talked for about 20 minutes before realizing that his vocal track wasn't getting recorded. So we had to start all over, and thankfully it was only 20 minutes. So so thanks for that, Dusty, and let's get to our conversation. So what do you see? Do you see anything like... It says recording. It says recording, okay. Yeah. So I'm not sure when you dropped off, but if mm-hmm. it says you're recording, then we can go ahead and, and start this over. And And here we go. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. And today it's my privilege to be speaking with Dusty Rhodes. Welcome to the show, Dusty. Hi, Mike. Thank you. I'm, I'm very glad to be here. Excited. I'm excited to talk to you, and, and thanks for coming on the show uh, the day after New Year's. And uh, uh, hopefully you had a good New Year's uh, where you're at. Uh, you're in Fort Worth, Texas, correct? Correct, yes. Good New Year's. Uh, very mellow. It was, it was sleeting and raining all yesterday, so we just kind of stayed in. No. <laughs> yes. Very, very safe. Very safe. New Year's. <laughs> good. Yeah. Very good. Yes, and of course, I hope my listening audience had a nice, safe New Year's as well. Uh, across the Midwest, we had a big ice storm, so a lot of us just kind of stayed home and did nothing, uh, which was fine. So. Yeah. But anyway, thanks for coming on the show, and I have a number of things I wanted to, to talk to you about. Uh, and we'll kind of get to those. And one of the things I want to talk about is uh, uh, two two critters in, in in particular. One is uh, a snake, and the other one is a lizard. And uh, we're, we'll get to those as we go along. But uh, first of all, before we start that, why don't you give us a, a little synopsis of uh, uh, what you're up to? And I know you're a biologist, and uh, you know, tell us, uh, you know, what school are you affiliated, and what where you're at with that. Okay. Yeah. I uh, recently graduated from Texas Christian University here in Fort Worth. And uh, we say uh, Christian, Texas Christian, little lowercase c, <laughs> because, uh, okay. because it's not really a, you know, a religiously affiliated university. I got gotcha. you. Um, more of a legacy from when it started back in the 1800s. But yeah, I just recently did my master's there with Dr. Dean Williams. Uh, he's known in Texas for working with Texas horn lizards. Um, he's a conservation geneticist. He actually did his PhD on um, some uh, Mexican, I mean, uh, uh, brown jays down in, in uh, Costa Rica um, back oh, in, the cool. 80s, in the 80s. Yeah. And uh, so he's con- conservation genetics is what he's good at. And uh, because He's at Texas Christian University, and the the mascot of Texas of TCU is the horned frog. In other words, the the horny toad, the horned lizard. Um, you know, they're kind of an icon of uh, of the American West and of Texas, and uh, ended up being the mascot of the school. And because they've been declining in their population across 
the eastern half of the state over the last uh, 50 years or so, it kind of fell in his lap to to work with them and to uh, establish a lab that basically only works on Texas horn lizard conservation problems. Okay. <laughs> and uh, and so that's how I found out about that. That's how I ended up here. Uh, I also have family here, and I'm and I'm a native Texan myself. So very good. Um, so yeah, I graduated with my master's in biology, uh, studying um, camouflage or background color matching in Texas horn lizards, which is their number one line of defense against uh, against predators. Um, ah. And uh, it had never been quantified before. In, in other words, to, to what ex- to what extent do they match their their uh, substrate? You know, I see. Um, and so um, I that's that's what my goal was for my my thesis. And I finished that um, a year ago. Uh, I graduated last uh, last December of 2019. So, Congra- congratulations on that. And of course, that is the lizard that we you. are going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and your, your work with that. And uh, and we'll talk probably at length about that. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, I want to talk about a I want to talk about a book you wrote back in the aughts, if you will. <laughs> And the book is called The Complete Sabak. Way back in the aughts, yes. <laughs> Way back in the aughts, uh, right after the turn of the century. And, uh, and I want to talk about that because uh, and for those of you that don't know what a sabak is, we're talking about uh, uh, the trans-pecos rat snake, which is uh, in the genus Bogotophis, Bogotophis subocularis. And sabak is the shorthand we use, most of us use for that species. And uh, so I want to ask you about that book and how you came to write it and that sort of thing. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, ever since I was a kid, I um, I had desires to write books about snakes <laughs> and about herps. And uh, it started when I was um, living in Texas City, Texas, uh, which is in Galveston County on the coast. And uh, on Saturday mornings in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old, uh, my mom would drop me off at the Moore Memorial Library there, which was our public uh, library. And uh, and I would go to the, you know, not the kids section on snakes. I would go to the, you know, the adult part of the library uh, or, or, you know, for mature readers. Yeah, so let's not take that the wrong way. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, and I was reading, you know, everything that they had there on, uh, you know, I read uh, Alan Tennant's Texas Snakes and uh, Caulfield's books, um, a lot of those classic uh, herp literature books that they had there. And I was just enthralled and I would just do that and I would just be kind of engrossed in that. And you know, around the same time, my mom would also, when we had a lot of, you know, kids in the family and it was helpful if she could kind of get rid of us while she went and did her shopping. And so she would drop me off at the pet store, which was right next to the grocery store. And I would go in there and and there was a a nice uh, elderly couple that owned the pet store named Jim and Shirley Marshall. Um, They own Jungle Jim's pet store down in Texas City. I don't think it's open anymore. Uh, Pretty sure they retired, but I would go in there and I would just read their books that they had <laughs> on herps and uh around that time i think it was about 91 or so there was a couple books that came out by a phd professor of uh, biology microbiology on corn snakes and his name was mike mckeechern and uh, he and they were you know more herpetocultural leaning um but they were kind of scholarly because of his you know training in the biologies um 
one was about uh, breeding, the other one was about morphs and so forth. And uh, and the back of the morphs, the color morphs book, uh, he had, and this was when all this was new, all this color morph stuff, right? And uh, right. he, uh, in the back of the book, he had this address in there, uh, a mailing address, asking readers, hey, if you know of any color morphs that you know that are new or um, novel, please write me. This was before the internet, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And so I didn't know any new color morphs, but I knew I wanted to write a book about snakes and I thought he did a really great job. And then I was only 11 or 12 years old. So I sent him a letter, a handwritten letter telling him, hey, I want to write a book about snakes too. Can you give me any advice? And he wrote me back and he sent me this packet of uh, a hard copy of the proof of one of his books. And in addition to this letter and giving me some advice, and I'm sure he got a chuckle out of it, you know, getting a, a I want to write a book letter, you know, from a 12 year old kid. Wow. Uh, but it, what was funny about that is that when the book, when my sub book came out in 2008, so that was in 91 or so, uh, when I was 11, I think. And, um, when my, when my book came out, I found him online. I found which university he was at and everything like that. Just, uh, and I sent him an email said, I don't know if you remember me, but, <laughs> and he huh. said, I, he said, I do remember you. And I, I'm pretty sure I still have that letter from you somewhere at my attic, you know, nice. uh, and, you know, and he congratulated me on writing the book and he said he was, he was sure that maybe my book would inspire others too. And it was very nice, you know, but very um, cool. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's a small act of kindness. Exactly. You know, he didn't, he didn't have to do that, but right. he kind of went the extra mile and, and look what, look what it got you. I mean, right. Mm -hmm. Thump. Here's, here's how it's done, kid. <laughs> that's, that's awesome yeah yeah it was oh, cool man yeah. that yeah. that's that made my day just hearing that right yeah and I, I would love to like to bother him if i could you know go find where he lives and be like let me go look in your attic for that letter because i know you're not <laughs> gonna i want to just find that and see what that was like because i don't yeah. have a copy of that i had a copy of i had an extra copy of it that my mom saved for a while and i who knows where it's at it's probably long gone anyway good great story though yeah so this book is about the Transpecos rat snake, and what uh, what's in the book? It's um, I tried to make this book a monograph as much as possible, and a monograph is just a book that summarizes everything known about a particular subject. And so that's what I tried to do with that book. It's called the Complete Subok, but in, and there are other complete books uh or books in that complete series from eco there's the complete i think knob-tailed gecko now and the complete carpet python the complete ball python etc cetera, etc cetera. and they're mostly herpetoculture books and i think they all are um there's the complete box turtle as well which is um written by carl james franklin which tends to yes. be a bit more scholarly i think um but it's mostly about husbandry how to breed them and that kind of stuff which was for me, that was synonymous with herpetology when I was a kid. I, you know, grew up in a small town. My my parents, you know, none. We didn't know any scientists. We didn't know any herpetologists. Um, right. So um, keeping, you know, but when I was reading Caulfield, you know, the keeper and the kept, it was like, hello, this is what herpetologists do. You keep you keep critters in in glass boxes and <laughs> you study them <laughs> yeah. that way, you know, and. Uh, on the in that uh, Mike McEachern's corn snake books that I was reading in that pet store, there was an advertisement in there from the Advanced Vivarium Systems, and it was the uh, the American Federation of Herpetoculturists, and and that was the only quote unquote herpetological uh, organization I'd ever heard of. I just knew I wanted to be a part of it, and so 
my mom mm-hmm. wrote a check, you know, with a self, uh, not a self-addressed stamped envelope. That's something else. <laughs> but she sent in, she sent in a check to, you know, them. And, and I was a member of the AFH, the American Federation of Horticulturists. But I would get the, the Vivarium, which is a bimonthly uh, journal, very similar to Herp Nation magazine, which was a few years ago. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was published by Philippe de Vaugely. He was the main editor um, of that. And he had a lot of, you know, still very, fairly prominent herpetologists would publish in it. I think, um, I don't know why I'm forgetting his name right now at San Antonio zoo, uh, PhD Dante, Dante Fanolio. Oh, Dante. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Da- Dante published in that, um, Dave and Tracy Barker, uh, sure. uh, others. And so, um, yeah, it was... I, I, I have all of them by the way. Oh, you do. Oh yes. Oh wow. Oh, okay. Yes. Okay. I used to have quite a few, and um, when I moved, they ended up staying somewhere where I moved away from, and who knows where they're at now. But uh, uh, I'm I'm kind of envious of that. Someone needs to like take those and then scan all of them. <laughs> oh, you know. The book. You know? The book of. Yeah. The book of. Yeah. Those were fascinating and uh, a great photography. Very yep. well done. Yep. And uh, all too short lived. Absolutely. So how does that relate to the book? Well, um, was that kind of an inspiration for you? Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I mean, I, I wanted to be those those people who were doing these amazing things with with herps. And uh, and so I wanted to contribute in some way. I wanted to be a participant. Uh, as far as my interest in Transpecos rat snakes, uh, about 2001 or so, well, you know, going back to when I was a kid, I was reading the search for Sabacularis, you know, in, in Caulfield's book, Keeper in the Cats. And and they always just look, the snakes just always look so handsome to me. And they just, they just look like, for me, for me, living in East Texas and, you know, not having parents that, you know, or people that would take me out to the desert to go looking for, for herps, uh, the, the desert always had held these kind of romantic notions for me. And Subox, Transpecos rat snakes, to me, they just look like the epitome of an animal that was created in that beautiful environment of the of the desert, you know. And it, they they had that sort of uh, yellow uh, uh, kind of porcelain scales and um, y- you know yellow skin that kind of matched some of the limestone down there and um, big beautiful eyes. They were just very different for me, and I'm. And I remember in my early 20s, I was like 20, 21, I wanted to read a book about Transpecos snakes, and there wasn't one. And so I think that was where the impetus for writing a book came about on these uh, on these snakes is I started, I, I wanted to be kind of, you know, contribute some way, be a participant. And, right. and, so, and so I thought, well, hey, I can be, I can be Mr. Subok, you know, I can be like, I, I can, uh, I can contribute in that way. There's not there's not a subox specialist out there. Why don't why don't I just do that? And so I, I built a website called subox.com, which no longer exists. Um, and I I had a I amassed a collection of these snakes, different locality ones and so forth, and was breeding them and selling their offspring on this website. And these were all captive bred. I wasn't going out in the wild for for your listeners, just so they know. I wasn't going out in the wild and pillaging populations. Most of these snakes were like multiple generation captive bred since like the 1980s, you know? Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so as I was going through the library at my undergrad alma mater, uh, Brigham Young University, 
which was a really great library, really great library. In the, in the Princeton Review, it's usually in the top three libraries of all universities. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. But they had, it was a really great resource for me to find a bunch of stuff on Transpecos rat snakes. And so I started, when I got there, I started amassing all these articles and I just Xeroxed everything and started putting it together. And I was like, putting it together for this website. And I was like, well, someone's going to take this and basically put it into their own article or their own book. And I've always wanted to write a snake book. So why not give it a shot? So that's, yeah. that's how that came into, that's how that crystallized into an idea for, for a book. Awesome. So the book has uh, chapters on natural history and chapters on how, how to keep them and how to breed them and all the different color morphs and things like that, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, that's very interesting. And uh, I think the, you know, for many people that, that didn't know uh, about all these different, that the fact that they come in different colors and have different stripes and blotch patterns and things like that, uh, I, it's sort of a revelation to find out that, no, these things are kind of variable across their range. Right. And honestly, I, for somebody um, who's interested, for, like me, who was interested in snakes, that's how, that's how I learned about genetics was by breeding snakes and, and talking to breeders of snakes. You know, for Mendelian genetics in some ways, even though you can work with Punnett squares and all that, and you can work with uh, pea plants or corn or whatever – in some ways it's kind of an abstract concept, <laughs> but if you can actually see how the colors and patterns work with, with genetics, it could be a really useful conduit for people to become interested in biology, you know? And so I see. Um, I, that's how I view it. And I'm still learning things about transpecos rat snake genetics, even though I don't actively breed them anymore. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah. Because, uh, uh, originally, of course, originally they were in the genus Colubor, which was sort of a big junk drawer genus back in the day. And then they were in Elafi with the other North American rat snakes. And, mm-hmm. uh, then they were lumped over in, in Bogertophus with the, the Baja rat snake. And, yeah. uh, but they're not really closely related to North America, the other North American rat snakes, are they? Aren't they close, more closely related to other species? Correct. Yes, they are. Um, they're not very closely related to, yeah, to the Pantherophus, the North American rat snakes. They're more closely related to, um, together with Baja California rat snakes, are more closely related to um, Pseudolaphy, the tropical rat snakes of Mexico and, um, and uh, Central America, than they are to any other group of snakes. And in fact, if you look at their bodies, their, their bodies are almost exactly the same. The tail on the tropical rat snakes is a little longer, and they do have, they do have more blotches. Uh, in, their, yes. in their in their count, um, but their eyes are just as big um, and uh, you know kind of uh, pointing to a very nocturnal existence between the two genera, uh, Pseudolaphy and Bogertophus. Both mm-hmm. it, it, and you know Daryl Eby has has found blonde transpecos rat snakes down in southwest Texas near Big Bend, catching bats underneath bridges and so forth. And uh, uh, and there are. I think it's very interesting that you see, you know, their closest cousins, these uh, Pseudolaphy down in Yucatan, there are populations of, of those that stay in bat caves their entire lives and eat nothing but bats from the I time. See. Yeah. So, um, it's, so you, they could just as easily be called the Transpecos bat snake. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. The bat snake. Exactly. Very good. I've seen some uh, Pseudolaphy 
Flavorufa down in the Yucatan. Those are impressive animals as well. They're I'm jealous. That's like amazing. That would be like my, you know, instead of the search for Sabacularis, mine would be the search for Pseudolaphy. Yeah. Hey, those things get big down there too. Uh, I, we got one one night. It was close. I want to say close to seven feet long. Maybe wow. it was over six feet long. Yeah. Uh, on, on the road late at night. A very, very cool animal. That's what I would love to see that. It would be a very impressive animal, I'm sure. So these things are more, you know, this interesting that what genetics tells us, because we all always assume those things are kind of, you know, like the other rat snakes in North America, but not so much. Right. Yeah. And there's different ways, you know, of course, to define whether something's um, a species, but um, by some of the biological, uh, some of the species concepts that are out there, Transpecos rat snakes are in some ways, and, and Baja rat snakes are very, very separate you know, as far as being separate species, because simply from the fact that they have a different number of chromosomes than most other, most other colubrids in the Lampropeltini, which is the, the, the tribe of colubrids that Transpecos rat snakes and uh, Pseudolaphy belong to. I see. Um, And so there's what they call pre-zygotic isolation there. You know, the zygotes wouldn't be able to uh, uh, form you know, probably wouldn't be able to form viable offspring from a breeding b- between different species of Bogertophis or, you know, something else. I see. Yeah. Um, so that's very interesting as well. Hmm. Okay. Uh, it, well, that's, that's kind of amazing. But when you wrote this book, this is sort of stuff you you didn't realize or no that's that that's definitely in the book but some of the stuff i didn't realize has more to do with the 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 color pattern on on wild type or you know the kind of nominal h patterned transpecos rat snakes that you that you know from you know most mm-hmm. most specimens in the wild have this h pattern on their back one discovery that i've made looking at pedigree charts of different morphs, including the blonde, is that the H pattern on transpecos rat snakes, and I'm, and I'm still working this into a manuscript for peer-reviewed publication, but uh, actually several, probably two or three different papers. But uh, one of them, one of the findings is that the H pattern is a code, is most likely a co-dominant mutation. So because you have the two stripes. Tell, tell us what that means, co-dominant. Co-dominant means that two different genes that express themselves at a particular locus or at a particular um, phenotype, right? And so okay. let's say you're talking about color pattern. Right? The, the, you know, the classic example of co-dominant mutations in the textbooks are the blood type that we have. A, you know, okay. you can be A, B, A, O, whatever, right? Um, those, those are co-dominant mutations, right? Because neither one is recessive to the other. Neither one is, is not expressed. They're both expressed at the same time. So on the pattern of a transpecos rasnik, you have two stripes that run dorsolaterally along from, from the neck of the animal all the way to the end of its tail. And they're, they're typically black on the neck. And then they kind of fade into more of a brown or almost very faded as you get towards the tail. But they're still there. And then you have about 32 blotches or saddles on the snake's mid-dorsal aspect as well. And it turns out that those two things are inherited separately. In other words, they're, they're governed by different genes. I see. <laughs> but 
they're both they're both co-dominant with each other. And so that's why it looks like H's on the back because the two stripes straddle the, the saddles on the back of the snake. And, and so I just think it's a very interesting, you know, like I say, the, the classic textbook example is blood type in humans. But here's an example of co-dominance and a native animal here in Texas that, that kids could learn about in their textbooks, right? I mean, it's relevant, it's relevant to Texas wildlife and it's less abstract than your blood type. I mean, when you, when, when you find out your blood type, you just, you give blood, uh, donate blood and you get back a piece of paper saying what your blood type is after some tests are done, right? But right. then you can actually see that the stripes and the blotches are inherited together co-dominant. And, and there's reasons why I know this <laughs> is because blonde, the blonde transpecos rat snakes are essentially stripeless. We wow. could, it's, it's actually more, um, it's more correct to mechanically to call a blonde a stripeless transpecos rat snake. That's what it is. Okay. It, because the stripes are gone, the saddles are still there. That's what it is. And so there's less melanin rendering the animal more yellow because they're naturally more yellow. They, they have they have yellow underneath that melanin. And okay. the 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 stripes actually amplify some of the melanin or some of the black pigment around those blotches, which which gives that H pattern that you see. And see. so is there a uh, blotchless stripe variety? There is, <laughs> there is, and they've and Imagine they that. and they originated in captivity, and uh, it, and and there's actually some that came that Steve Hammock, who used to work at the Fort Worth Zoo, um, uh -huh. that that he had from he had a, a female that was gravid from Comstock, and she laid eggs, and two of the babies hatched out blotchless, and they were just striped, and so here's here's the interesting thing, is that. When I was working on this manuscript about blondes and their genetics and their geographic distribution in recent years, which I'm still I'm still working on it, uh, I, I, I hypothesized. I was like, okay, so theoretically, since there's this there's this striped mutant in captivity, it was brand new at the time. The ones that Steve Hammock had hatched back in the early '90s had died or they had escaped, and so he never got to find out really anything about their genetics. But in the UK, there was another breeder that had had bred some and he had some stripes that had hatched out serendipitously and, uh, and he raised those up and bred them. But was in, what was interesting is he had some of the blonde gene floating around in his captive collection. <laughs> and so okay. he, he raised up those, some of those striped animals, bred them to each other. And because they were heterozygous for blonde, AKA stripeless, what do you think they look like? The, the one, uh, in six, the double heterozygotes, the double heterozygotes. I mean, the, uh, the, the double recessive homozygos were patternless. <laughs> so they were both, stri they were both stripeless and blotchless. And so they're, they basically look like a Baja California rat snake. They're completely immaculate. They're, they're, they're patternless. And, but what, wow. was, fun what was funny is in two 2016, when I was, when I was writing up the, uh, the discussion part of my manuscript on blonde genetics, I, I, I writ I had written that down. I'd said, I had wrote, uh, I had written that, in theory, you should get a patternless if if this is all correct. You should get patternless from this uh, double recessive uh, homozygous cross, right? Okay. So this, this accidental discovery in the in the captive bred population uh, confirmed your, your yeah, it, it, and then it and then it happened, and then it happened like later that year. <laughs> he bred them together, and he and he got a patternless, and so I was like, yes. So that's that's <laughs> basically how, why I'm pretty sure that 
the H, how the H snake got its H's <laughs> is that yeah. they it's codominant and uh, how they lost their H's is that it's it's a recessive uh, stripless mutation. Okay. So uh, very interesting. I mean, you, you don't often get to find out the genetics of things in the wild, you know, and uh, unless you're unless you're breeding them in captivity. But there are scientists who study white you know, white phase black bears in, um, in British Columbia. And there are scientists who study, you know, uh, blanched um, uh, lizards in the white, white sands area of New Mexico. And they've, yes. And they've gotten to, you know, Erica Rosenblum and others, they've, they've looked at their genetics and so forth, but it's not often that you get to find out what are the genetics, what governs the genetics and what governs the, the natural selection of those, uh, of those genes in the wild of, of, naturalized populations. And so that's why I find all of this so interesting. And it's, you know, it's, it's right here in Texas. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you were, when you started the book, you, you had not actually seen one in the wild. When I started the book, no, I hadn't, I hadn't, I was only 20, let's see, I was 24 when I started the book and uh, I had not seen a, a subock in the wild until, well, until I was already starting to work on the book. Um, I was about halfway through and then that's when I took my second trip out there and finally found a sub Um, and I found a few. Cool. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I've only seen one in the wild. I, I saw one, uh, on my first trip to, to, to uh, West Texas back in 1995, 96, maybe I forget. Uh, we got one near Lajitas. Was it a blonde? No, uh, it was kind of a straw yellow color. It was you know, sort of like the one I, you know, I saw in Caulfield's book. It looked like a lot like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just an uh, incredible animal. I haven't seen one since, but uh, on other trips. Uh, so, you know, and I'm really lo- looking forward to going back and, and looking for them again. But uh, yeah. uh, it was uh, one of those things that was, you know, on a dirt road and crossing a dirt road in the middle of the night. And you knew instantly what it was. There's no mistaking what that animal was absolutely yeah yeah they they in the in the uh, flashlight or in the beam of your headlights they really st- stick out don't they yeah and they have that weird uh, eye which kind of i don't want to say it reflects light but it it picks up light from mm-hmm. certain angles which is kind of interesting yeah yeah it's almost like a, a snow globe or something it's just <laughs> it it's yeah it's, it's so bulbous that it just like you say it uh it reflects light in a way that looks like what they what they call pseudo eye shine, I think is what Carl Caulfield called it. Yeah. Because the eyes are big and bulbous and right. catch the light in different ways. So, mm-hmm. so and I know the animals are called subocularis and that refers to the, an extra row of scales below the eye, but they could just as easily be called ocularis, right? Exactly. You could just call them ox. Ox. All right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> Subox or ox? All right. uh, yeah, they're just they're just such a iconic animal of the Chihuahuan Desert, and you know, I, of course, I went to see one because it's the thing you do, right? You you read the book, mm-hmm. uh, you read the Caulfield book, and then you you drive to West Texas and you try to find one because it's a it's a, a quest or a pilgrimage or however you want to uh, describe it, but uh, obviously. Uh, his writings tickled the fancies uh, of hundreds, if not thousands of people and, and made them jump in their cars and drive out there to look for one. Right. And, and he, he talks about those snakes so poetically, 
you know, it was just like, yes, like, let me experience this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think they were a mystery to him before he saw, he found them, right? And the, yeah. Sort of a, uh, a really unknown, obscure snake, you know, it was called the Davis Mountain Colubur. Right. Yeah. They were just known from the Davis Mountains, basically. And uh, he went down there and met with um, a, a biologist who recently died. Um, oh, Bill Dagenhart. Yes, Bill Degenhart. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, he was a, a park naturalist down there, I think, or uh, at the time. Uh, but yeah, the way that he wrote about them, I think, just kind of captured all of our imaginations and um, really excited us. And uh, a lot of people have wanted to have their own search for Savocularis, including me. I just remember when I when I found my first one, <clears throat> I was with Michael Price. He was kind of my guide out there. And we went to several places. We went to uh, the Miller Ranch, which I was very lucky to visit, um, which is in more southwest than Big Bend. And uh, it's in the Sierra Vieja Mountains, which are mostly very red rocks down there. So the Trans-Pecos rat snakes are very reddish colored. And oh. They're not yellow there. They're red. Well, some of them are yellow, but quite a few of them are red. The the, the rock rattlesnakes are red there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, very beautiful creatures down there. But yeah, but when we found my first one, which was uh, in Black Gap on the road down there, um, the overwhelming feeling I had was not to catch it. I just wanted to lay down on the pavement and just watch it. <laughs> ah. just un- un- unmolested i wanted to just see it just you know kind of almost like a fly on the wall i wanted to be that and just and just see what it was like to experience a transpago strat snake that's not bothered and it's uh out there in its remote environment you know just doing its thing yeah 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 uh and it's hard to describe the feeling somebody inspires you to 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 find this thing. And then when you do find it, it's, it's just sort of an incredible feeling. And, and that, you know, there's, there's no going back on that, right? The book, the book's coming. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind <laughs> right. of cements the whole thing, right? Right. Exactly. Very cool. Uh, before I move on, I want to talk about the, your, your work with horn lizards and stuff, but I want to ask, so you're, you're still do have some ongoing research with, uh, Subocularis. Yes, uh, I was working with, still working with uh, Dean Williams here at TCU um, after I graduated um, in his lab, and we were we were trying to we were trying out candidate genes to figure out what what is the uh, the actual locus and what is the mutation that causes blondes, and because okay. I, because I wanted to be able to go into museum collections or just uh, tissue sample. DORs, roadkills, or, you know, people's captive locality animals and find out which percentage of them, what percentage of them carry the gene, because that would tell you, that would tell you different things. It would tell you whether they're just, they just breed with each other willy nilly or do, um, do blondes preferentially breed with blondes? Is, Is that a thing? You know, because we know that, you know, for instance, we were talking about white sands lizards a minute ago. We know that white sands lizards, um, won't breed with uh with brown lizards <laughs> so there's, oh. kind of, there's kind of this 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 racial segregation thing going on with um uh with the white sands um earless lizards and so forth or in, in other words incipient spe- speciation that's kind of going on mm-hmm. down, down there and uh and and so you know i i've wondered 
if, if similar things are going on with transpagos or not snakes, but yeah, being able to find the gene would tell you some of that. Another interesting thing that I'm doing with the, with the blonde transpagos rat snakes is that, and this is any, something that anybody can do, if you get on Google Earth and you zoom out over Texas and you try to look, of course, this is just, you know, anecdotal, but if you try to look for the yellowest spot <laughs> on Texas, oh. on Texas, it's essentially the blonde range. It's, it's, uh, it, the, the limestone, uh, where blondes are found is yellow. It's creamy yellow, just like these snakes. It's called Bokeas limestone or Santa Elena limestone. Mm -hmm. It's Cretaceous, but it's yellow. It's, it, there's a lot of limestone throughout West Texas. That's grayish colored or white colored, but this is, this is very almost sulfur kind of yellow in some places. And so to me, it makes sense that even though this is a recessively inherited mutation, that it's basically hung on or it's, it's uh, propagated itself down there in this uh, yellow limestone area. And so one of the things I'm doing is uh, with a fellow researcher, Amber, Amber Long, um, we went out this past summer and we photographed with a drone blonde habitat all the way from the northern part of the, the Christmas Mountains um, on Highway 118 all the way uh -huh. down to um, to the extent of the Blonde Range, which is which is essentially West Rancherias, past the Big Hill, west of Lajitas, and uh, and so we we did drone photography and roadside geology photography, and using the same uh, using the same technology I used to study background color matching in Texas horn lizards for my thesis. Um, I've over the years I've gathered a lot of photos of wild collected blondes and normal, you know, H pattern transpecos rat snakes as well from their from that same range. Uh -huh. And so right now I'm in the process of looking at their color data from those blondes and then from the H pattern ones as well and seeing if there is a a higher match to the the rock background in one or the other. And okay. uh, if they're the same. Or if blondes have the the same percent match or higher, then that might that might mean something. Who knows? You know, okay. if, if they if if it's not if they happen to be lower, then then it's something else. But at least this is one way of maybe getting at the question: Why is this trait? Why is it caught on? Why why hasn't it kind of winked out? You know, right, um, right. So that's what I've been doing with transpigos rat snakes uh, lately. Very good. And so it's, at some point you may have some conclusions about that to, to publish. Yes. I'm hoping to have something in here in the next six months to a year or so. Okay. <laughs> and I feel like I've been saying that for the past five years, but yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. Well, it's 2021, so we'll start making plans again. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move forward. Uh, well, let's just move forward all together. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah. let's let's talk about the horn lizards uh, work that you're involved with, and what what can you tell us uh, about that? Yeah. Uh, so do we want to, we want to go into the book or the or, or the, the the grad school research or we can whatever you want to start with. Uh, but okay. let me ask you this: Are you still seeing a recording? Yes, still I recording? am. Okay, yes, very it does, good. It does say that. Yes. Oh, that makes me feel good. So. Take it any which way you like. Start however you want. Obviously, there's this issue of uh, the university being cognizant of the state's, you know, it's a, it's a signature animal and needs to be protected and brought back and stuff like that. So however you want to do that. Okay. 
Yeah, so recently I've been doing, uh, working on a book, um, and I've got a contract with TCU Press, Texas Christian University Press, to publish this book, and it's a conservation book. It's as different, there's basically only been a couple of horn lizard books published, uh, really, ever. And one is like the horn lizard Bible, it's written by Wade Sherbrooke, um, Dr. Wade Sherbrooke, uh, who has been a very prolific uh writer or researcher of peer-reviewed studies on horn lizards and okay. uh, and he's his book is excellent but it's a, but it's about all horn lizards and it's a field guide mm-hmm. type book from University of California press um it does it does address conservation in about 7 pages the other one is is a small paperback written by a journalist here in Texas who's also written a book on I think pecan trees so you know she's writing books about sort of uh, emblems of the state of Texas, you know, um, yes. and she also has seven pages dedicated to conservation, but more it's about the problems, like why they think horn, Texas horn lizards, which are this icon of Texas. They're an icon of the American West. They're the state reptile, you know, and there's about 200 different species of reptiles in Texas. So it's kind of cool that they won, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, to become the, the, the official state reptile. And, um, you know, of course, they're the mascot of TCU and, uh, you know, they're in a bunch of old Disney movies from like, you know, old yeller from the 50s and, you know, other cowboy type Westerns and stuff. Um, They're just kind of an emblem of the West. But we've been losing them over the past. They've been they've been disappearing over the eastern half of the state of Texas and eastern half of Oklahoma uh, for the past half century. And people have always you know, have been wondering why. And they're a very fond memory for a lot of uh, older generations, you know, people who grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s uh, as kids, seeing them in their yards, catching them. And I wanted to be that little kid, you know, catching them in their yards, but I never did. I never saw a horned lizard until I was 27 years old in, yeah. the, in the wild. Um, but being a researcher, <coughs> excuse me, being a researcher on them, you know, at TCU, we attended some some meetings that were dedicated to just studying horn lizards, and um, one of them is organized by the folks at Fort Worth Zoo, and it's called the Texas Horn Lizard Conservation Coalition, and it's ex- exclusively just <coughs> researchers from different universities working on them, on this problem of of trying to conserve our you know state reptile, and um, zoo zoo folks as well as people from state wildlife agencies coming together to present their talks to present their research and and then coming up with plans <coughs> about how they want to manage captive populations in the zoos and so forth but i at this most recent one i was the i was one of the presenters there that was here in fort worth this year or this past year in 2020 in february and um i had raised my hand and i had asked some of the speakers like People at the zoo, folks at the zoo, folks at Texas Parks and Wildlife, for instance, they get calls or emails and so forth almost on a daily basis from the general public saying, hey, I've got some land in Texas. We've got a ranch. We've got a yard, whatever. What can we do to help horny toads, you know, to, ah. to help horn lizards? <clears throat> and basically what they told me at this meeting is that they just turned them away. We, we can't we can't help you with that. Sorry. And what? So, right. Yeah. So they... <laughs> So it, it does kind of sh- it did kind of shock me. That's what I said. I was like, wow, like why, like why, why aren't we involving the public in this kind of thing? You're like, why is it just the zoos and and just the universities when it when it really could be all of us, you know? And um, 
and I would say, you know, my inspiration for, for this book, just to kind of jump tracks just a little bit, um, goes back to about 2008, 2009 with a, with a book that was put out by a, an entomologist in Delaware, University of Delaware named, um, Douglas Tallamy. And, um, his book, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with it, it's called Bringing Nature Home, uh, How You Can Sustain Wildlife with Native Plants. Oh, cool. I'm yeah. not familiar with that, but that sounds cool. It was a book that I got when I was in my late 20s, 2008, 2009, and I read it cover to cover. And I was just like, this was a problem I always thought about as a kid is like growing up in, you know, in Galveston County. My, why did my parents and my parent and my and my friend's parents see horn lizards in their yards and other types of wildlife that they would tell, you know, my parents grew up in Oklahoma and they also, my dad also lived in Bryan, Texas, uh, in College Station area. And uh, he, he saw lots of horn lizards there back then, back in the 50s and 60s. And, and they saw box turtles. They had box turtles in their yards too. And there was a lot of other wildlife that was present that wasn't present when I was growing up. And I always wondered like, why? Like what's, you know, what's going on with all this? And so that's why that Douglas Tallamy's book, Bringing Nature Home, How We Can Sustain Wildlife with Native Plants in Our Yards and so forth, like really struck me because I thought, because you're, what he, his argument was is that 90% of all herbivorous insects, which is most insects, most insects are herbivorous, uh-huh. um, are 90% of those are specialists. And most of the species on the planet that we've counted so far, something like 62% of all the, the species, on the, all species, including plants, animals, whatever, fungi, are insects. And 90% of those are specialists. They specialize on one kind of plant because plants have, you know, of course, adapted their own phytotoxins and things like that to, because they don't want to get eaten, but, right. but insects have to eat anyway. And just because a few insects are, hat, you know, hatch out from a clutch or whatever, and some of them have more resistance to phytotoxins, they, you know, of course, propagated and they, and they became specialized specialists on eating one kind of plant. Right. And so, because most most vertebrates eat insects at some stage in their life, including pr- practically all bird species, eat insects when they're at least when they're hatchlings. Even if, even if they grow up to eat seeds and stuff later on, their parents feed them insects because they're high in fat, high in protein, and you know most fish populations, you know freshwater fish, uh, amphibians, reptiles, a lot, and a lot of mammals eat a lot of insects. And so his his point is that if we want to sustain wildlife populations, we have to bring back our native plants, get rid of our ornamentals, get rid of our St. Augustine you know, turf grass yards, and start propagating native plants. Uh, and so, so you have to bring back the plants to bring back the insects to reestablish the bottom of the food chain. Exactly. Otherwise, it causes a bottom-up trophic cascade. You know, it, it basically makes the whole the, the, the food web fall apart if you don't have those insects. And so having these monocultures of, you know, turf grass, St. Augustine grass, these big expansive lawns like we humans love to have, especially here in America, uh, that, that gobble up all kinds of water and gasoline um, in order to keep them trimmed and green and fertilizer, etc., is just so wasteful, and it, it, but it, it's also, it doesn't do anything. It's a dead end for food webs. And so his, this idea, right. that's basically the gist of his book. And um, he won all kinds of awards for gardening that year uh, when his book came out because it was, it answered a big question a lot of people have who 
who want to garden because they like nature, not necessarily because they just want to show off what flowers they have or because, uh, you know, they want to grow tomatoes, et cetera. And so I had been thinking about this, been thinking about this. And, and so I, th- I thought there should be some kind of a book that helps citizens know what they can do to establish habitat for horn lizards, whether they have a tiny yard or a big stately ranch. And so this book is really kind of like about habitat management, wildlife management, prairie restoration, et cetera, um, because horn lizards are very much a community organism. You know, they're, they're, there's some species like um, some, some annual grasses, for instance, or annual forbs that they're not a, they don't do well. They don't thrive in communities. They thrive in places that humans have gone and destroyed the environment. You know, bulldozed, whatever. Disturbed habitat. Disturbed habitat, yeah. Disturbed soil. Exactly. Cereal species, you know, the first colonizers in in, in a succession of uh, plants that establish themselves. Right. And horn lizards are very much not that way. They're not, they they thrive in communities. They thrive in places where you have a lot of other vertebrates and a lot of of variety of plants, probably in part because of their diet. They eat a lot of ants. A lot of people think of uh, horn lizards as eating harvester, uh, seed harvesting ants, grass seed harvesting ants, pogo, pogo mm-hmm. to myrmex. Um, but they, at, when they're hatchlings, they don't eat a lot of pogo, you know, pogos. They eat um, other t- species of ants. They eat big headed ants and so forth. So, ah, ant- okay. So, so this is a, re- a revelation to me because I, I had just assumed that that's what their harvester ant was the the keystone food supply for them. Right. And it, and it is, it is kind of the, 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 the meat and potatoes for horn lizards th- throughout the genus and throughout the range. But there are some places in South Texas and, and Rachel Alenius, one of the PhD students uh, in Dean Williams lab currently for her master's thesis, she found out that they, the bulk of their diet down in South Texas in, in these small towns where you could still find horn lizards in people's yards like you could back in the old days. It's kind of weird. Uh-huh. And so we're, that's, that's where we'll, the Williams lab spends most of its time is in this, in this small town down in South Texas called Carnes City um, in Carnes County. And, yeah. um, and so there's this weird phenomenon of, you know, a, a small town still having these horn lizards in people's yards. And so what she had found out was she was – the horn lizard's scat is very big. <laughs> it's very, it's very big, and so you could just walk down an alleyway and find their scat in the morning. And it's mostly there's a lot of ants. You can see the ant bodies, pieces of of harvester ant bodies in there. Um, mm-hmm. But actually, most of their diet was in, at least down in South Texas is these harvester termites. <laughs> oh. And so they're these they they act a lot like harvester ants. They eat grass. They don't eat the seeds of grasses like like harvester uh, uh, ants do, but they eat the, the actual grass stems above ground and maybe even the grass roots of below ground. I don't know. But they build these mud tubes around the grass stems above ground. And, um, and then on cloudy days, at least when it's not too hot, they will march in single file above ground. And this is perfect for the behavior and the um, adaptive ecology, you know, the ecology of horn lizards because... They're not very fast animals, horn lizards. They um, they depend so much on camouflage. They're basically little chicken nuggets, you know, laying out there on the prairie, right. and and they don't move very fast. They're very flat, kind of weirdly shaped animals, 
And they depend on having, to, and not, not like whiptail lizards and so forth, where they're out chasing things around and moving around fast all the time. They want to stay put and they want to eat things that are marching past their nose all day long. <laughs> yeah. It, it's like a cartoon almost of the, the horned lizard sitting there and just picking off the, 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 the termites go marching one by one and the, the, Horn lizard picks off the the one at the end, and then the next one, and then the next one. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Cartoon in my head right now. Yeah, or like that old um, Lucille, you know, I love Lucy episode where the you know she's in the chocolate factory and the chocolates are you know going past and she's trying to stuff them all yeah. in her mouth, kind of <laughs> that kind of thing, you know. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so yeah, so that's interesting. But you know, so I I wanted to come up with you know some kind of a formula, not a formula, but just like a plan for people to be able to say, okay, this is what I need to do in order to establish structural and diet habitat for horn lizards in my yard or in my ranch, oh. you know, et cetera. So it's, like a and, little, it's like a little recipe, right? Here's of, what to do. Yeah. Here's what to do. Here's, here's, you know, and, and, and there's other stuff in there too. I mean, I, I addressed, I want to address like what, you know, what the state and what the zoos are doing with, uh, captive populations and reintroductions. And uh, I want the the mission of this book is to empower everyday Texans and not just Texans, but I wanted to have a, a sort of a focus in the book. And so, you know, Texans have a lot of pride because of this is their state reptile. And, um, you know, of course, any of these principles and stuff would work in Oklahoma or Kansas or anywhere else where you have Texas horn lizards. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, I wanted to have actionable advice. Yeah for readers because here's the thing it took it took everybody in previous generations from their actions you know from from bringing in non-native grasses to feed livestock um, right. and replacing prairies which was most of texas you know right. the, at least the center part of texas and, and certainly the western part of texas which which would you know in an acre of or you know in a hectare or whatever of of native prairie you would have as many as like 200 different plant species and, right. and, and at least in tall grass prairie and it may be as many as 40 different grass species that's a lot of different seeds for, uh, dropping on the ground throughout different phases of the year throughout different seasons of the year for harvester ants to to find these seeds right and sustain harvester ant populations and, and which would in turn sustain things like that eat ants like horn lizards right and so it, it's just, it's been really, man, I've learned so much. I've, I've been reading books about, you know, certainly horn lizards, but, you know, bison, quail, pronghorn, you know, uh, yeah. gra grasses. Um, You're in deep. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I can't, I, I don't, there's not enough time in the day. To, and, and not only that, but fires and indigenous people's uses of fires. Mm -hmm. um, uh, prairie dogs. I'm sure a lot of people are follow, follow Harry Green, Dr. Harry Green on Facebook and have been, you know, seeing his updates about his prairie dog uh, restaurant. Oh, I, I love that, man. Isn't it great? Yeah. Isn't it great? Well, it turns out that prairie dogs support something like 170 different vertebrates. It, it, just from their towns and their tunnels and their mounds that they build, they right. uh, and and bison are actually more attracted to prairie dog towns because they keep the grasses clipped, and grasses that are clipped have more protein in them than 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 tall grasses that have been growing for weeks and weeks and weeks. Oh. And, and um, yeah, so th they have fresher buds. It's kind of like having like you know baby uh, lettuce or something like that, or baby 
spinach as opposed to something that's been growing a long time and it's lost some of the nutritional value on the, on the ends of the plant, you know? I understand that completely. As a tortoise keeper, I understand that completely. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. (laughs) I I didn't know you keep tortoises. Yeah, I I have uh, some South American redfoot tortoises and, and uh, they, they like the young dandelions much better than the old dandelions, which are kind of tough and fibrous and like you say, may have, may have lost a, significant portion of their uh, of their nutrition because the leaves are, are old right exactly that's and that's what it comes down to and so prairie dogs they stand about a foot about 12 inches high and they like to keep all the grasses on their on their communities lower than 12 inches so that they can see predators coming and so right things that eat grasses like pronghorn and bison uh part of the you know the native uh group of ungulates uh, and, and you know herbivores grazers are attracted to those, but not just that, but, you know, burrowing owls and black, sure. black footed ferrets are, are in mm-hmm. very much dependent on prairie dog communities. Uh, but Texas horn lizards are one of them. So Texas horn lizards are one of the ones that if you build prairie dog communities, Texas horn lizards will come, will, will come <laughs> as long wow. as, as long as they're close by, you know, because they will, they will sleep in the burrows. They will use, they will lay their eggs in the loosened soil. You know, as will box, box turtles, and I'm sure you know a lot of your listeners who are herpers will will appreciate this. When you go out to visit prairie dog towns out in West Texas, for instance, uh, that's some of the most reliable places for you to find a lot of prairie species that are herps, like um, Mexican hognose snakes, uh, ornate box turtles, uh, tiger salamanders at night, prairie rattlesnakes. You know, uh, yes. in fact, there's a particular prairie dog town I'm thinking of in Brewster County, Texas, where you can find five different rattlesnake species on the road that, that traverses that prairie dog town there. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. 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 And, um, it's, and I'm, and I'm sure that's going to be a tough selling point for readers of my book, you know, most Texans. Yeah. I was just thinking, uh, when you try to bring all this around to your, your landowner, right. Who, who has pride and wants to bring the horny toad back. How do you, you can't say, well, you're going to have to, you're going to have to bring back the prairie dog town. You can't really start there. You have to start somewhere much more simple, right? With these are the, these are the plants that you can do, uh, you can plant. These are, this is how you can manage your soil and you need to stop using, you know, insect killing pesticides that you're using and that kind of thing. Right. right. You yes. Start with the basics like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So there there are individual chapters in my book that address all of those things. I used to be, I used to be a pest control guy for at least four years in Texas. And, uh, uh. and I was a nuisance wildlife guy too. So I would, um, after I got my bachelor's degree in biology, I, one of the first available jobs to a lot of, a lot of people with just a bachelor's degree in biology is you could be a, you know, somebody who works for critter control or something like that, you know, sure. a number of my friends have done that very thing. Yeah. And so, and so I, I think I can speak to that. I can speak to w- ways that you can you can keep a diverse community of plants that are native in your yard or in your landscape or your ranch and still keep things out of your house that you don't want to have in your house, you know, uh, w- without using pesticides so that horn lizards can be around, too, because if you yeah. use pesticides, they won't stay around, of course, you know. Right. Um we, we honestly, we have to evolve, <laughs> you 
you know, how we do pest control and, and how we look at landscaping um, as a as a species, humans, we have to change in order for a lot of these things to come back. Because if you if you look at Earth from from space at night, say, say, you know, the United States, just getting on just get on NASA's website and you'll see photos. We've gridded everything up. There's nowhere else for wildlife to go. We have to live with them. We have to change the way we landscape. We have to start building wildlife overpasses and underpasses and, and connect populations that are already starting to wink out and, and build wildlife corridors. Uh, otherwise, yeah, I mean, all this we don't want uh, to lose this rich natural heritage that we have, you know. Sure. Yeah. Well, very good. Uh, so I, I'm looking forward. And obviously, I don't want you to give away too much <laughs> of right. what what you're coming out with, but um, uh, I look forward to to seeing this when you do finally get it complete. When when do you expect this to be to go to print? Um, it should be going to print at the early uh, the end of the end of this year. It should be um, on the Texas Christian University's spring catalog of new titles of 2022. Okay. Yeah. Very good. And are you doing any other work with horned lizards? Yes. Um, I had mentioned that I, I studied background color matching in Texas horned lizards with, for my graduate degree. But uh, another thing that I was, I, I used that same technology, just like I'm using it on some of the Transpecos rat snake blonde and versus H pattern, you know, background matching stuff. I'm using that with round-tailed horned lizards, uh, with photos that people have op- uploaded to iNaturalist. Um, okay. And, uh, because, you know, there's this hypothesis that's, you know, true. I mean, as far as we can tell, it's true that Wade Sherbrooke and others have written about for decades about how they're stone mimics round, round tailed horn lizards are stone mimics. Um, yes. Phrynosoma modestum. And they will, when you walk up on a, on a round tailed horn lizard, oftentimes they're in places with, they're prefer- preferentially in places with small, um, smooth stones and pebbles and uh, they seek out those places. We know that from ex- from some of Wade's uh, experimental research. He had a paper that it, it was some. I think it was titled "Choosing Between a Rock and a Hard Place" or something like that. But ah. it, he gave he gave some of them uh, some smooth, rockless stuff to choose from, and some stuff with rocks. And they would always go to the place with rocks. So, anyway, another hypothesis is that they actually color match to their local geology and some. Decades ago, there were some uh, some researchers who uh, used a spectrophotometer to show that they did indeed do match to the local soil. But what I'm doing is I'm going through photos of in situ photos of Phrynosoma modestum on iNaturalist and where it looks like the lizard wasn't even disturbed. Right. And matching them to different things in their environment around them to see what what they match most to. Is it the is it the soil? Is it the rocks? Is it the branches? Is it other vegetation, et cetera? And it does turn out that they do match more to the stones and pebbles more they more than they do to the soil. And so, so are you are you using some sort of um, color match color matching algorithm to to figure this out? Yes, it's and it was really interesting how this came about. This was a paper that was published in a an obscure Brazilian journal and the researchers had come up with, they, they borrowed an, a, an algorithm that's used in community ecology. When you're trying to figure out 
similarities between different habitats as, as far as species assemblages. In other words, you might have three individuals of species A and four individuals of species B at site A, right? And then you have a different number of the species. And then you could kind of come up with like a, a certain percentage of, of that they share in common, right? Of okay. the species assemblage. But they took that, they took that algorithm and they borrowed that for a um, image J, which is just a free photo editing software, open source photo editing software. And they applied those uh, that algorithm to the the red, green, blue colors on an on a digital image, right? Okay. So the colors that we can see, and if you can lasso, you know, you can highlight um, any image, any any object in an image, and compare it to the colors on any other part of the uh, object in the any other object in the image as well, or other okay. or other photos and their objects, right? And so it basically spits out a percentage color pattern matching between two or more objects. And I see. Okay. yeah, and it's free to use. I, if anybody wants to learn how to do this, I'd be happy to, to show you how um, you have to use a, a statistical software package. In addition to this called R a lot of, you know, colleagues yes. are familiar with this. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's really easy to do and it's kind of fun. It's, it's a really fun way to do research because you get little emotional rewards from, you know, seeing what, what matches more, you know, and, and uh, you don't have to wait for weeks and weeks and weeks to get your results. You know what I mean? Right. Okay. Yeah. I might make one suggestion to you. You mentioned INAT. You might, you might want to talk to the Hurt Mapper folks too for like photos of Modestum. Yeah. Okay. So Hurt Mapper, I actually am not even all that familiar with that. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, we can talk about that. Uh, we can talk about that after the episode too. But the, sure. yeah, I, well, I, actually, I'm part of the Herp Mapper project. So, oh, okay. Uh, it, basically, it's like iNaturalist, but it's strictly a, for global herpetofauna. Oh, okay. very cool. Yeah, but you'll have to submit a proposal, uh, a, a short abstract proposal stating what you, what you need to use the records for. Yeah, uh, and then you can become a, a data what we call a data partner and have access to all the records of Modestum in the database, which all records contain a photo voucher. So, so we, we might, I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not going to pull it up right now and see how many Modestum records we have, but I'm sure we have some you might, might find valuable. So. I would love that. Yes. I'm always, I'm always happy to to talk to you. Yes. I'm always, I'm always interested in in different, you know, uh, repositories for observations from citizen scientists so that I can do this kind of, this kind of thing. There's a lot of untested hypotheses out there about, about camouflage, things that we assume to be true because we've been talking about them for years and years and years and sure. publishing them in field guides, you know, that we assume to be true, but actually untested. And so um, there's a lot of opportunity there for people who, you know, during the off season, you may not be able to go out and find herps, but you can sit at home on iNaturalist or Herp Mapper and find photos of uh, different species and test different hypotheses about camouflage, you know? Yeah. And it, you know, and there's, there's some drawbacks to it, but that's because you don't get into the, um, the ultraviolet aspect of the, uh, the spectrum, the color spectrum. Um, right. But <clears throat> like, like you can with a spectrophotometer, but that has its drawbacks too, because not a lot of people are able to use a spectrophotometer in the field, you know, and I can't even say it much less use it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, and they're very expensive devices, but everybody has a phone or, a, you know, everybody has that pretty much most people have access to, you know, the internet and they can right. find photos that other people have uploaded. Um, yeah. 
Cool. That sounds, it sounds very interesting. And of course, each species of horned lizard seems to have a different camouflage profile, right? I mean, you're talking about the Modestum. I, I noticed like Hernandezi, the little, I can't think of the common name now. Yeah, the shorthorn lizard, yeah. Shorthorns, uh, you know, they, they seem to match a lot of stones similar where they, you know, they match the rock color. And so they're, uh-huh. if they're basking, they're kind of clumped up against a rock of similar color and they look like a little, just a little bump on a rock, you know, uh, which is, I find interesting. I, yeah. One thing that, that comes to mind is I was out near Yuma a couple of years ago with some buddies and we found a uh, Phrynosoma uh, goodie, goodie uh, out there, and I can't think of the common name of that one either, but it's kind of a grayish looking thing. And it was just in the middle of the road, uh, on a dirt road, you know, just the yeah. sand and, and dust and kind of a grayish coloration to it. And it just kind of bl- blended in with the pebbles and the sand and the whole thing, you know. Uh-huh. And while we just hunkered around it, photographing it, one of our one of our guys, I think it was Andy O'Connor, was like, hey, there's, we just drove by one, <laughs> you know, it was, just sitting there in the middle of the road, you know, laying flat as can be, and you know, just perfectly blended in with the with the native substrate. It's just kind of amazing. It is amazing. I think I think of all the of all North America's lizards, or at least Western North America's lizards that I can think of. I think horn lizards are probably depend on crypsis and camouflage probably more than any of their group because they can't they don't run up trees or fence posts or they're not very fast. They're not like a whiptail where they can outrun you. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's a very, yeah, within that genus, it's a, uh, really striking. And, and, and Wade Sherbrooke has showed this in some experimental studies that it, it is for sure their first line of, of defense against predators. And he, one of the things that he did was he, he took, uh, coach whip snakes and Western dimeback rattlesnakes, and he introduced them to hundreds of Texas horn lizards to see what they would do. And in every single case with coach whips, they wouldn't run. The horn lizards wouldn't run because they knew they supposedly they're they're adapted to quote unquote know that they they would get caught if they ra- tried to outrun a coach whip. <laughs> um, and so they just stand there. I mean, they just sit there and they kind of pancake and blow themselves up and you know puff themselves up to look bigger. And then they they always try to provide the 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 dorsal aspect to the to the snake which looks really almost like a pancake you know with a lot of horns and stuff it doesn't look very, it doesn't look very palatable and hard to swallow hard to swallow and but with the the diamondback rattlesnakes they would get the f out of there <laughs> yeah so they would settle away so they they have the ability to recognize uh predators to a finer degree than maybe we thought right hmm. um and uh and and they do use that Crypsis whenever they can, you know, they'll stay put. Um, One of the things that you're talking about Crypsis, and I, I got to thinking about this a little bit. Uh, uh, obviously, birds, avians come into play here, right? Because they're, you know, obviously a predator of all things herp. Uh, and, and I'm not sure what the, I'm not sure what the, the avian eye sees. I, I, I wonder if they, do they have the same sort of spectrum that humans do? Or do they, do they see into the ultraviolet a little bit or? Yes, a lot of birds are like humans 2.0 because they can see they can see the red, green, blue aspect, which is the three dimensionality. You know, the three types of cones that we have in our eyes: red, green, blue. Right. Mm-hmm. And but they also have ultraviolet catching cones as well in their eyes. A lot of birds ah. do. And okay. so 
and so, but here's the thing, and I've had some criticism from other researchers say, well, you know, your method doesn't use, you know, ultraviolet, doesn't get into that. But here's the thing. One of the other researchers at TCU who started at the same time as me, uh, Stevie Merkin, he, um, his project was he took, he made bunches and bunches of, of lifelike, life-size uh, foam models that he hand, that we all hand, helped him hand paint. <laughs> Um, I remember seeing these on your, I think on your Facebook profile, but please go ahead. This is Yes. Yeah. We, we, we made and painted hundreds of adult size, which are, you know, adult Texas horn lizards about the size of a deck of cards. You know, we had those, then we had um, like juvenile size and then we had hatchling size and we had hundreds of each of them and we painted them all. We sat them out uh, at this um, Karn city where you, where you still see lizards and people's horn lizards in people's yards and there were basically no predation on the foam models in the in the town. But then he did the same thing with the same number of lizards on on a nearby ranch, which was more naturalized. There's more native species, native predators, and so forth. Um, Roadrunners, raptors, that sort of thing. Which we hard we did see a roadrunner in town, and it did have a horn lizard in its beak. Um, yeah, but for the most part, we didn't see hardly any raptors or any other predators in town. It, that were natural predators. We, you know, you see a lot of uh, cats and that sort of thing, dogs, um, and and other predators that were subsidized by human de- refuse, like raccoons and possums and stuff. Um, there were a lot of predation events on the ranch, and we had hmm. two. Di- we had two different uh, groups. We had one group of of models that were painted to match the red sand or the red dirt, the red soil of the of the ranch, and then we had in town, the dirt is gray. It's kind of that East Texas kind of gumbo-y kind of gray uh, soil. And so the horn lizards in town are gray. The horn lizards on the ranch are red. <laughs> okay. And uh, he swapped them out. So for one part of the experiment, he had red lizards on the red soil. And he had gr- the gray lizards from the ta- from that we used in the town as well on the red soil and vice versa. And there were more bird predation attempts on the foam models when the colors didn't match on the ranch than there were when they matched. So even though birds can see all the colors that we can see, but they're actually the colors are altered because since they have that extra UV catching cone, all of the colors are, are going to be altered. But they're going to be probably kind of relative to what we we humans see, I think. You know, it, what looks purple to us is not going to look purple to a... A, a UV sensory capable bird. Uh, we have no idea of knowing what that is because we lack those cones in our eyes. We we also lack the hardware in our brains to interpret what that looks like. <laughs> ah, yes. But at least for the at least for the uh, normal spectrum, there there's uh, there's some evidence of them of, responding to that spectrum. Yes, within birds that probably some of which do see in the UV spectrum. And so, yeah, there's some evidence that even though birds have that extra ability, things that look color matched to us probably look fairly color matched to birds too. And ah. at least based on Stevie's experiment, his his master's thesis. Which which is what you would expect, right? I mean, right. you don't expect nature to have a I mean, when I say nature, you know, the you don't expect this thing to have a hole in it. Right. Just because it's another part of the spectrum. <laughs> right. I mean, right. obviously they're they're selecting for all of when they when they have their camo their camouflage and their coloration has selected for 
all the spectrums, including the ones that we, as mere mortals, can't see. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Mm-hmm. Very cool. I love this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to wrap up our talk, but I, I want to ask you, first of all, I, I assume you know, people, your your Subak book is still in print if people are interested in, in getting a copy. Um, and I, I will put something in the show notes about that. Well, thank you. Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> so that people can, you know, get a copy from you. Mm-hmm. And you'll have to let me know when your your hard lizard book comes out, and I will make sure that I share that, uh, if not in the show notes, at least uh, within the uh, social media connected with the show, so we get people to uh, to take a look at that as well. So, uh, and uh, so you don't really have any uh, other. A website or anything where you're promoting this stuff, right? People can get a hold of you through Facebook, I assume. Yep, through Facebook or my email is subox at gmail.com. I still have my team. Oh, of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> and I, st- yeah, that was going back to 2005 when Gmail was brand new. And I was like, oh, it's gonna, mine's going to be subox. But, um, but I also have my TCU e- email address, which is dusty.roads, R H O A D S at tcu.edu um, okay. as well. So, um, very good and yes i will be i will be having a companion website for the horn lizards book and the and oh the, very good and and the uh, uh some, maybe some wildlife consulting stuff having to do with horn lizard conservation as well so um people can soon be able to find that within the next few months that's awesome um make sure you make sure you let me know or i'll try to i'll when i see it on Facebook, i'm sure you'll announce it on facebook and i'll Make sure that uh, our our audience knows about that too. Uh, this stuff's just fascinating to me. Just to hear you talk about all this, and of course, uh, once again, I've renewed my my interest in going back and finding some more <laughs> some more subocularis. Uh, Please do and take pictures. <laughs> I'll send you some. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I like the other one. The uh, Bogartophis, uh, and I don't know how you say the last name. Ro- Rosalia. Yeah, Rosalia. Yeah, uh, I, I've seen those and I like those a lot. The babies—they're spectacular. Yes, I've seen I've seen some photos that you have taken. I think of those snakes on some of your trips out there with, with uh, some of the other Herper crowd. You know, I uh, yeah, very very jealous of, of, <laughs> of you being able to finally. You, I, I remember you guys found a hatchling and I think a really big uh, adult that you posed very kind of like. Uh, grismer style you know on a on a cliff overlooking the ocean or something you know <laughs> it was really yeah. cool i have to say the hatchling rosalia or rosalia i don't know how to say it rosalia right uh, the hatchlings are just spectacular oh they're gorgeous spectacular and uh they look like almost like a like an a, i don't know like a a, a dry mark on or something you know like a they almost look like they could be a uh belong to the Kribo or the uh, Indigo family or something when they're yeah. hatchlings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they have that green head. And then the first trip we made out there, uh, we had, we found six neonates and of course they're, they're not like neonate king snakes or something. They're big. They're 14, yeah. maybe 14 inches long, 13, 14 inches long at, at birth, which is pretty incredible. Uh, but you know, I, I don't get the urge much more, anymore to, to have captive animals. But yeah, uh, when I was holding this, my first little neonate in my hand, you know, I just picked it up off the road and 
looking at this thing. I just had this most powerful urge to, pos- to possess that animal. You know? <laughs> First, you know, I left it where I found it. I'm not bringing, I'm not taking anything home from Mexico anyway, but, uh, you know, it's just profoundly beautiful animal. So, so how do you find those down there? I mean, tell me, tell me what that's like. You found six of them. So how, what was that like? Uh, road cruising up in yeah. mountain areas, mm-hmm. you know, much there, there, the a critter of the really rough and rocky areas, uh, up in, in, in yeah, of course, Baja has many, many, many mountains and a yeah. big chain of mountains running down the, the center of it. And, Basically, that's the the you know, comp- you know, snake lives along that, that entire spine of mountains there. So yeah, and I, we, everyone I've seen has been road cruising. I haven't seen one otherwise. So okay, very cool. So I, I'm interested in upping my subocularis numbers too to match. So <laughs> well, it's it's interesting how many people have told me that their first suboc they ever found was a blonde and me. Huh? Uh, uh, yeah, Harry Green was one of them. He talks about it in his. Uh, his most recent book, uh, field biology is art. What's it called? Oh, tracks and shadows. Tracks yeah. and shadows. Uh, yeah. he, he talks about finding a, what he, what he calls a butterscotch colored transpagos rat snake in there. Uh, that's, that's one of the data points in one of my, in my blonde manuscript right now oh. <laughs> is, is a snake that he, yeah, a snake that he found in 1972 is it is in the is in a jar of, the, of ethanol over here at university of Texas, Arlington, just down the road. Uh, but it was a blonde, and that was the only subhawk he'd ever found until 2014. He was with me and Jerry Salmon and, um, and another guy named Gary Hayroth. Uh, we, we were at Lemon Gap out there between Sanderson and Marathon, and we found a big um, male um, crossing the road. And that was that was Harry Green's second subhawk. I was, I was fortunate to be with, with them and with him on that night when he found that. And it had a big gash, a triangular-shaped gash in its belly. To me, I was thinking it must have been attacked by an owl, but I don't, I don't know. Um, but that that was a that was pretty interesting. That was a pretty cool experience oh. to be out with Harry Green out in West Texas, and uh, no doubt, yeah. It's funny how many times Harry gets mentioned on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's such a likable guy, you know. I mean, I think that's honestly his, yeah. his his. I mean, he's so knowledgeable, of course, and such a good, uh, very good writer. Uh, just I think his his likability is what makes him so popular, you know. But yeah, other other people too have come to me and told me, yeah, the first snake, first subhawk I ever found was a blonde, which is really interesting to me because only about j- just you know according to very simple kind of scrub down high school textbook population genetics, <laughs> uh, what they call Hardy Weinberg equilibrium, which is a very simple equation anybody can do to figure out what percentage are heterozygotes and what percentage are you know uh, whatever in a population, roughly one in a dozen or so down in um, the blonde range is a blonde. And so it's interesting to me how many people, their first subhawk was a blonde, but I, I've had at least probably 12 people tell me that Michael Price's first no. was a blonde, you know, um, several others, but interesting. Lucky, lucky duck. Yeah. I need to go down and find my, yeah. my blonde then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Well, Dusty, thank you so much for coming on the show and, uh, appreciate you making some time with me today. To, to talk about all this and as per usual i think i could talk about this stuff for several hours more but uh, <laughs> no thank you this has been fun i mean this is this is what we live for right <laughs> yeah yeah indeed indeed and uh good luck with the projects and with your your, your future projects and uh 
you know, once again, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you very much. All right. That's it for episode 32. Dusty Rhodes, thanks so much for coming on the show, and uh, thanks once again for putting up with the technical difficulties. And folks, if you're interested in getting a copy of Dusty's Subok book, you can email him at subox at gmail.com. That's S-U-B-O-C-S, Subox. And once again, I want to thank Dave and Adam and all my Patreon people. And if you would like to contribute a few bucks to keep the show running, you can visit patreon.com slash so much pingle. That's all one word. And before I go, I want to remind you that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much And you can also join the so much pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests and other herpsters who hang out there. And uh, oh, yeah, I always forget to mention that I'm on Twitter as well. I'm at so much pingle. Isn't that clever? And don't forget that you can also contact me directly at so much pingle at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from you. Uh, and until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better. <laughs>